Hi, I'm Beth, and I'll be reading you today's edition of the Cape Cod Times, dated Monday, January 8th. We start with the weather and the lottery. Today, after these morning and chilly clouds, it turns out to be a partly sunny day this afternoon with a high near 37. Tuesday, it's warmer, 42 degrees, but with some thickening clouds, and Wednesday turns out to be some heavy rain. It's going to be a high of 55, though, so no snow in the forecast. It's also going to be very windy. Thursday, back to a low, a high of 44, some sunshine and some patchy clouds. Taking a look at some lottery numbers from the weekend. For Sunday, January 7th, <clears throat> the numbers game, the midday drawing was 9268, and last night's drawing was 6327. Mass cash for Sunday was 2,410,2234. And the Powerball for Saturday, January 6th, was 4, 31, 34, 38, 61, Powerball, 13. Here's your first front page headline, Endorse Bike Path and Keep Railroad. Falmouth and Mashpee leaders support, born, no. Two Upper Cape Towns have recently weighed in on the proposed Bourne Rail Trail. The proposal would connect the Shining Sea Bikeway in Falmouth to the Cape Cod Canal Bike Trail in Bourne. Both Falmouth and Mashpee leaders have now voted to support the idea of building the bike path alongside a set of existing railroad tracks known as the Falmouth Secondary Line, or F2. But that's not what the town of Bourne wants. That town's leaders support the idea of pulling up the railroad tracks and putting in a bike path instead. The project has drawn controversy in recent months from railroad stakeholders, state lawmakers, local officials, and recreational cyclists alike. Why would you take the tracks up just to build an extension to the bike path, said Falmouth Select Board Chair Nancy Taylor. The board just didn't see that we needed to remove the tracks if we could come up with a plan of putting a trail in addition to the rail. I think they didn't see a reason to pull the trails. The Falmouth Select Board voted in December to send a letter to Governor Maura Healy's office supporting the Rail With Trail alternative. Three members voted in favor of the measure and two voted against, according to a review of the meeting minutes. The tracks are being used to haul solid waste off Cape, and because the tracks terminate within the boundaries of Joint Base Cape Cod, they can be used by military installations as well, Taylor said. An official for the base didn't comment, but base spokesman Don Veitch told the Times in September the National Guard uses the tracks for large-scale troop and equipment movement. During a November meeting of the Mashpee Select Board, the members voted to support the Rail With Trail proposal and sent a letter to Healy's office expressing their position. The board cited a recommendation from Mashpee Director of Public Works, Catherine Laurent, who said the F2 line is important for transporting solid waste in a cost-effective and environmentally friendly manner. Officials for the town of Mashpee couldn't be immediately reached for comment. Now, the proposed six-and-a-half-mile bike path would run north and south parallel to the Buzzards Bay coastline. The proposed bike path is part of a Cape Cod Commission project called Vision 88, an initiative that aims to connect a network of 88 miles of multi-use paths and bike trails spanning the entire Cape from Woods Hole to Provincetown. 
Currently, $20 million in federal funding has been made available through the Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority for the project. Officials from the town of Bourne and the community group Friends of the Bourne Rail Trail want the proposed rail-to-trail option, citing low use of the railroad tracks and the larger costs associated with keeping the tracks in place alongside a proposed bike path. Ken Chaitlin, president of Friends of the Bourne Rail Trail, said the rail-with-trail option, keeping the tracks alongside a bike path, would require building 11 new bridges. The railroad track crosses several roads and access ways and is too narrow to accommodate both a bike path and the train tracks in its current state, he said. The building and environmental permits would also take too long to acquire, he said. The rail with trail proposal would also require taking some private land along the path in order to make it wide enough, Chaitlin said. We continue to believe that the interest in the trail far outweighs the utility, either now or in the future, of the Falmouth Secondary Rail Line, Chaitlin said. Chaitlin said the rail with trail option is nearly $70 million more expensive and the funding made available for the project would be lost if it isn't used for the proposed rail to trail option. Now, Mass Coastal Railroad, the company who operates on the F2 line, hauling freight of solid waste from an Upper Cape transfer station to an off Cape location, has been starkly opposed to the idea of replacing the tracks. Chris Podgurski, CEO of Mass Coastal, said in an email that support for the track has grown recently and keeping the railroad in place allows for the convenient removal of waste from the Cape. Keeping the tracks makes sense, Podgurski said. Removing the tracks would create thousands of additional truck trips on local roads and highways carrying debris over the canal bridges along with the empty ride back, he said. Meanwhile, in the spirit of compromise, we continue to support the rail with trail proposal as a way to realize the benefits of of both freight rail and bike paths for the community. And this story from Osterville. In coming weeks, the Osterville Recreation Building, what remains of the former Osterville Bay Elementary School and Community Center campus, will become just a memory. The Barnstable Department of Public Works Structure and Grounds Division last weekend permanently closed the facility at 93 West Bay Road ahead of its demolition over the next two to three months. A demolition contract for almost $267,000 was awarded to Pasquazi Brothers Incorporated of Cranston, Rhode Island in December. The company is the same one that undertook demolition of the former Marston's Mills Elementary School last August. We are starting with asbestos abatement on Monday, said town architect Mark Marinaccio, speaking by phone on Thursday. It will be the first of two asbestos abatement stages focusing on the building's interior. The second abatement effort will take place after the building is torn down and before the foundation is removed, since the foundation has its own asbestos coating. It's going to take about two and a half months to do the entire building, Marinaccio said. The tennis courts, ball field, and playground on the site will remain open during demolition, but residents are advised that some of the parking spaces won't be available. According to the DPW, the contractor will keep as many spaces open as possible and will open and close additional spaces as construction warrants. 
The contract includes hazardous materials abatement, building removal, and septic system removal in addition to backfilling and grading. Unless there are weather or other unexpected delays, the plan is to begin tearing the building down around mid-February. The wreck building has been slowly deteriorating over the last few years, <clears throat> according to Marinaccio. We've been fighting moisture infiltration into that building, he said. The building appears in town assessing records in 1980, but officials believe construction was started in 1978 or 79, based on the existence of hazardous materials that were discontinued in 1980. The wreck building did not have any staff stationed in it in recent years, so no offices are getting displaced. In the current condition, the wreck division was limited in utilizing the space for small group rentals for birthday parties, basketball activities, and 4-H organization that trains pet owners, Barnstable Communications Director Lynn Poyant said. The heating system failed last year and the building was winterized in November. At the same time, rentals were discontinued. The most consistent user of the facility, 4-H, is now using another facility on Route 28 for its classes, according to Point. The upcoming demolition comes six years after the former Osterville Bay Elementary School, constructed in 1915 and permanently closed in 2008, was torn down in late 2017. The town initially considered taking down both the school and the rec building at the same time, but officials decided to keep the younger rec building in use a while longer. In the meantime, the approximately five-acre site has seen other improvements, including tennis courts where the school was located. In fiscal year 2018, designs were created for a potential new rec building, and in fiscal year 2020, the ball field was funded. The field is a regulation-sized softball field, but the rec building is taking up space on part of its outfield area, Marinaccio said. Once the building is removed, the land will be graded to allow for a full outfield. Planning for improved rec opportunities at the site, located near the village center, began in earnest about a decade ago. It's been a long process from fiscal year 2014 all the way till now. We've made major improvements to the site. It's almost like an urban renewal, Marinaccio said. A total of $190,000 of the funding for the demolition is left over from money previously budgeted for the school building and rec facility removal. And the town council approved additional funding last year to make up the difference between available funding and the bids that were getting quoted and also including funding for some soft costs. There are design development plans for a new rec building that were created in collaboration with the Osterville Village Association, according to Point, but they would need to be reviewed to determine if they would meet the needs, meet the needs of the town. There is presently no funding set aside for a new building. The Public Works Department advises residents using the site to observe all temporary fences, barricades, and signs for their safety. And this unfortunate headline, the flu and COVID season are worsening. The flu season in the U.S. is getting worse, but it's too soon to tell how much holiday gatherings contributed to a likely spike in illnesses. New government data posted Friday for last week, the holiday week between Christmas and New Year's, show 38 states with high or very high levels for respiratory illnesses with fever, cough, and other symptoms. That's up from 31 states the week before. 
The measure likely includes people with COVID-19, RSV, and other winter viruses, and not just flu, but flu seems to be increasing most dramatically, according to the CDC. We expect it to be elevated for several more weeks, said the CDC's Alicia Budd. So far, though, this is a moderate flu season, she said. Interpreting flu reports during and after the holidays can be tricky, she said. Schools are closed, more people are traveling, and some people may be less likely to go see a doctor, while others may be more likely to go. The flu season generally peaks between December and January. CDC Director Dr. Mandy Cohen said she expects it to peak by the end of this month. Officials say this season's flu shots are well-matched to the strain that is spreading the most. According to CDC estimates, since the beginning of October, there have been at least 10 million illnesses, 110,000 hospitalizations, and 6,500 deaths from flu so far this season. The agency said 27 children have died of flu. COVID-19 illnesses may not be escalating as quickly as flu this winter. CDC data indicates coronaviruses caused hospitalizations haven't hit the same levels they did at the same point during the last three winters. Still, COVID-19 is putting more people in the hospital than flu. Lauren Ansel Myers of the University of Texas said the nation is seeing a second rise in COVID-19 after a smaller peak in September. There's a lot of uncertainty be uncertainty about when and how high this current surge will peak, said Myers, who runs a team that forecasts COVID-19, flu, and RSV trends. A new version of the coronavirus called JN.1 is accounting for nearly two-thirds of U.S. cases, according to a CDC estimate. But health officials say there's no evidence it causes more severe disease than any of the other recent variants. And here's today's photo column written by Cape Cod Times chief photographer Steve Heaslip titled, Pansies May Give a Hint About Winter 2024 on Cape Cod. There will be no shortage of predictions in 2024. As a presidential campaign year, pollsters are already at full throttle churning out numbers. Mark Twain's quote comes to mind, If you don't like the weather in New England now, just wait a few minutes which is one way to digest political polling. But day-in, day-out weather predictions are the most talked about. Let's forget about politics until spring. The winter season's first coastal storm has been in the news for over a week. For Cape Codders, it featured the infamous snow and rain line. Like a snake in the grass constantly slithering east and west across southeastern Massachusetts, where it will land, no one really knew. Shrug it off as just another cold northeast rain event, and suddenly there are six inches of snow in the driveway to shovel. Weather aficionados can now follow updates 24-7 as the latest computer models redraw snow total maps in real time. Thumbing through the old farmer's almanac, which arrived over the holidays, the first pages to read are the weather forecasts. The first sentence of their northeast prediction tells the whole story for winter 24. Winter temperatures will be above normal, as will be precipitation and snowfall. Got it. The most reliable weather update is also the easiest. Go outside and see for yourself. A couple of simple weather instruments can improve accuracy. The windblown dial thermometer by the kitchen window assists in predicting rain or snow, and the garden shed weather vane provides up-to-the-minute wind 
direction information. This storm data gathering technique also can provide some nice photo opportunities. Be sure to remember the winter photographer's mantra, there is no bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. So what will winter 2024 bring? The groundhog's prediction is still a month away. I have no answer. But the pot of pansies that were planted late last March sitting on my front steps are still blooming. Sure, they're a bit beaten up by the weather, but they keep sending out new flowers. My prediction, if they make it through January, it will be an easy winter. But, as everyone knows, Cape Cod's worst weather always arrives in March. In this headline, seven mass towns can now limit the use of fossil fuels. After years of deliberations, negotiations, and regulatory rollout, and some well-publicized agita in the corner office, a septet of Massachusetts cities and towns can now significantly limit the use of fossil fuels in building projects. The Department of Energy Resources gave seven communities the final green light to begin a groundbreaking experiment. They will require new construction and major renovation to embrace fossil fuel-free infrastructure for uses like heating and cooling. Acton, Aquina, Brookline, Cambridge, Concord, Lincoln, and Lexington can now begin enforcing those policies, effectively mandating that most construction or significant renovation projects inside their borders abstain from oil and gas hookups. Effective dates vary by community. In several cases, the landmark bylaws will take effect within three months. The Lincolns won't kick in till six months, uh, after DOER's approval, and Aquinas appears to have already started on January 1st. The bylaws themselves also have a few variations across cities and towns, carving out localized exceptions like allowing continued fossil fuel use in restaurant kitchens. Another two communities, Arlington and Newton, won conditional project acceptance from the state, they each have until February 11th to prove they fulfilled affordable housing requirements in the law creating the pilot program. This is a huge milestone, said Lisa Cunningham, co-founder of the Zero Carbon Mass Advocacy Group. I hope it's only the beginning of a sea change in the way we think about building, not just in this state, but throughout the country. The Healy administration did not publicly tout the formal go-ahead notice that DOER issued to communities on December 22nd. A DOER official confirmed the approvals on Thursday following a news service inquiry and said it had not been announced earlier due to the holiday season. Now, buildings are responsible for about 35% of greenhouse gas emissions in the state, making them the second largest source behind the transportation sector. State law set a target of achieving net zero emissions by 2050 and a series of escalating targets in the interim, and policymakers will need to substantially rein in sources of carbon to do so. Although the program is limited to just a handful of cities and towns, its supporters argue that it will kick off a necessary shift away from fossil fuel infrastructure in buildings across the state. Cunningham said use of those fuel sources needs to stop immediately if policymakers want to stop digging the hole deeper. The program still gets at just the tip of the iceberg because we're talking new or significantly new construction, she said, 
we now have to look to decarbonizing our built environment and our existing buildings. The nine communities moving forward with local restrictions on fossil fuels in construction are part of a demonstration program lawmakers created in a 2022 Climate and Clean Energy Bill. Then-Governor Charlie Baker initially voiced concerns about the idea leading to exclusionary zoning, saying the proposal gives me agita, before ultimately giving his approval. The program has 10 slots. Original applicant West Tisbury withdrew after its leaders said they would not be able to meet the affordable housing eligibility requirements. Each participant must have at least 10% of their housing stock affordable under Chapter 40B, secure safe harbor status through a state-certified housing production plan, or approve a zoning ordinance or bylaw allowing multifamily housing by right in an MBTA community. West Tisbury's decision to drop out opened up a spot for another city or town, such as Boston, where Mayor Michelle Wu spent months pushing for state approval to restrict fossil fuels in construction and major renovation. But only two communities, Northampton and Somerville, actually applied to join the program. DOER's regulations say the department will not approve a replacement for West Tisbury before March 1st. Lawmakers from the western Massachusetts towns have argued that adding geographic diversity would better support the pilot program and give it a wider scope than another populous urban core community. We need to prove to other communities that this is possible, and it's hard to do that if there's a lot of similarities between the cities and town, Representative Lindsay Sabadosa of Northampton said in September. In other news, Speaker Mike Johnson is inviting President Joe Biden to deliver his annual State of the Union address on March 7th. In a letter sent to the White House on Saturday, Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, extended the formal invitation for Biden to speak to a joint session of Congress. Johnson said he was inviting Biden in this moment of great challenge for our country. This will be the first State of the Union for Johnson as Speaker, who traditionally sits behind and to the left of the President during the address to Congress. This year's speech will offer an opportunity for Biden to detail his broader vision and policy priorities as he campaigns for re-election in November. Notably, Biden's address is scheduled for after a pair of critical deadlines to avert a government shutdown. Funding for federal agencies that oversee programs for veterans and on transportation, housing, agriculture, and energy is set to expire January 19th. Funding for the rest of the federal government, including the Pentagon, State Department, and Homeland Security, will run out February 2nd. The annual address from the President to Congress is usually scheduled for late January or February. Biden's March 7th address would be the latest that a president has delivered the State of the Union since 1934, when President Franklin D. Roosevelt revived the practice of giving the annual speech in person. Before this year, the latest that a State of the Union had been given was in 2022, when Biden delivered it on March 1st of that year. In last year's State of the Union, Biden repeatedly declared that he would finish the job on critical parts of his agenda that remained incomplete, such as capping insulin costs for all Americans, taking more aggressive action on climate change, banning so-called assault-style weapons and pushing for higher taxes on corporations and the rich. 
It was also his first State of the Union in front of a divided Congress, and some House Republicans interrupted and jeered at Biden, particularly when he spoke about efforts from some GOP lawmakers to cut Medicare and Social Security. In this story from New York, a judge late Saturday said former President Donald Trump's lawyers cannot present legal arguments to a jury assessing damages at a defamation trial on a jury's conclusion last year that he didn't rape a columnist in the mid-1990s. U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan made the determination in an order in advance of a January 16th trial to determine defamation damages against Trump after a jury concluded Trump sexually abused columnist E. Jean Carroll but did not find evidence was sufficient to conclude that he raped her. Trump, speaking in Iowa on Saturday as the Republican front-running presidential candidate in advance of a January 15th primary, criticized the judge as a radical Democrat and mocked E. Jean Carroll for not screaming when she was attacked. It was all made up, he said. Carroll, 80, won a $5 million award last May from a jury that concluded Trump sexually abused her in 1996 in a luxury department store dressing room and defamed her in 2022. Trump did not attend the Manhattan trial where Carroll testified that a chance encounter at a Bergdorf Goodman store across the street from Trump Tower was flirtatious and fun until he slammed her against a wall in a dressing room and attacked her sexually. Trump has vehemently denied it. In this month's trial, a jury will consider whether damages should be levied against Trump for remarks he made after last year's verdict and in 2019 while he was president, after Carroll spoke publicly for the first time about her mid-1990s claim in a memoir. Carroll's lawyers had asked the judge to issue the order, saying that Trump's attorney should not be allowed to confuse jurors this month about last year's verdict by trying to argue that the jury disbelieved Carroll's rape claim. They said the jury's finding reflected its conclusion that Trump had forcibly and without consent digitally penetrated Carroll's vagina, which does not constitute rape under New York state law, but which does meet the definition of rape in other jurisdictions. Carroll's lawyer said the sting of the defamation was Mr. Trump's assertions that Ms. Carroll's charge of sexual abuse was an entirely untruthful fabrication and one made up for improper or even nefarious reasons. Some people in the news, a judge on Friday declined to immediately put Cher's son into the legal conservatorship that she is seeking and he is opposing, but the court will take up the issue again within weeks. Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Jessica Uzcatugui ruled that Cher's attorneys had not given Elijah Blue Allman and his lawyers the necessary documents to give them sufficient time to make their case and scheduled another hearing for January 29th. Last month, the Oscar and Grammy-winning singer and actor filed a petition for control of the finances of Allman, 47, saying his struggles with addiction and mental health have left him unable to manage his money and potentially put his life in danger by making him able to buy drugs. Allman receives money from a trust left by his late father, musician Greg Allman. Shares attorney Gabriel Vidal said at Friday's hearing that a payment from the trust is pending and the immediate establishment of a conservatorship 
is a life and death proposition. But the judge said, I am not persuaded. She cited Cher's attorney's unwillingness to share material with Almond's attorneys when contacted Thursday. Cher's lawyers said they had confidentiality concerns and shared the documents instead with Almond's court-appointed lawyer. And actor Shia LaBeouf has converted to Catholicism after being confirmed on New Year's Eve at a mass presided over by Capuchin Franciscan Friars. The Franciscan's Western American province announced the news on its Facebook site where it posted images of a smiling LaBeouf receiving community, kneeling with his eyes shut in prayer at mass and hugging friars who attended the ceremony. The sacramental ceremony was held at Old Mission Santa Inez Parish in Salvang, California, the same friary where LaBeouf trained for months for his role as one of Italy's best-known and most revered saints in the 2022 film Padre Pio. LaBeouf has had several run-ins with the law during his career, including a 2017 New York City arrest for public drunkenness and disorderly conduct that was captured on a live stream video. He was sent to court-mandated rehabilitation. LaBeouf, who is also admitted to alcoholism and has been accused by a former girlfriend of abuse, spent months in the California friary preparing for his role in Padre Pio. So we've just about reached the halfway point of today's broadcast, and at this time we will read today's obituaries. From Brewster, in loving memory, we bid farewell to Shirley O'Donnell, a remarkable soul who graced this world for 93 years. Shirley, the beloved wife of the late William O'Donnell, was the nurturing matriarch to her adoring children, Nancy McMahon, Danny O'Donnell, Susan O'Donnell, and Trisha Fian, joined in love by her son-in-law, Jay Fian. Her legacy extends beyond generations, leaving an indelible mark on the hearts of 11 grandchildren and 12 great-grandchildren. Shirley's warmth and wisdom nurtured a family bound by love that radiates a unique charm. With her quick-witted perception and playful humor, Shirley raised a close-knit group, solidified by affection and laughter. Shirley was born in Rhode Island and spent part of her childhood in Nova Scotia. She raised her family in Medfield before eventually settling on the Cape. A longtime resident of Brewster, Shirley found solace and joy in the simple pleasures of life. Whether her hands were busy with the artistry of sewing, nurturing the beauty of her garden, or taking bike rides along the rail trail, she lived each moment with joy and gratitude. The ocean held a special place in her heart, and many cherished memories were made on the beaches she loved. Amidst the waves and sand, Shirley found a deep connection to the world's beauty, a love she generously shared with her family. Shirley is lovingly remembered by her family through her vast Santa collection, dominating or hogging Tetris or Dr. Mario, and effortlessly assembling puzzles. Encircled by the warmth of her family, these shared moments became the heartwarming memories she gave to her loved ones. As we say our goodbyes, let us remember Shirley not with sorrow, but with gratitude for the love she shared, the lessons she imparted, and the countless smiles she inspired. In accordance with Shirley's wishes, no formal funeral plans have been made. In lieu of flowers or memorial services, the family kindly requests that donations be directed to two causes dear to her heart, 
Contributions in her name are welcomed at the Animal Rescue League of Brewster, where her compassion for animals will continue to make a difference. Additionally, support for the family pantry in Harwich is encouraged, reflecting Shirley's commitment to family. Your generous gestures will serve as a lasting tribute to a woman whose spirit of kindness extended to both furry friends and families in time of need. It was Shirley's wish that everyone know how they are loved and that they extend that gratitude to those around them. May her spirit live on every time we say, I love you. Janet Millie McGilvin Throughout the last week of December, the Ford, McGilvin, and Marchio families shared their love in last days with Janet Millie McGilvin, adored mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and friend. Born in 1923 in Buffalo, New York, Janet was raised along with her sister and brothers by her loving grandmother. Upon her graduation from Lafayette High School, she was proud to enlist and serve in the U.S. Coast Guard Woman's Reserve, where she ran the company's store and served as an airplane wiring inspector at the Bell Aircraft Defense Plant during World War II. Following her discharge from the Coast Guard, Janet married Kenneth McGilvin and settled in South Chatham in 1948. Together they built and ran the popular Mashpatuxet Village Cottages on Cockle Cove Road and raised their family. Janet served as a crossing guard for the Chatham Police Department and also worked for the Livingston Pharmacy in Denmark's home medical supply from 1967 through 2007 before finally retiring at the age of 85. Janet will forever be remembered by all who were fortunate to have known her for her devotion to family, love for music and wildlife, great sense of humor, and compassionate spirit. Janet leaves all her love and 100 years of cherished memories to her children, Ronald McGilvin of South Chatham, Judith Ford of Harwich and Michael, and daughter-in-law Jane McGilvin of Brewster, her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Please join us for a most joyous celebration of life gathering and reception at the South Harwich Meeting House on January 13th at 1 p.m., at 270 Chatham Road in Harwich. Dr. John C. Doris, B.S., D.C. of Centerville, a lifelong practitioner of natural health care and ardent environmentalist, died January 3rd, surrounded by his children and grandchildren. He was 75. Born in Baltimore, Maryland, he grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, and graduated from Greenwich High School, where he set the Connecticut State Discus record, which he held for many years. John earned his B.S. in business at Boston University. He played college football in the position of offensive lineman and made it to Pasadena's fabled Rose Bowl Stadium in 1969. After college, he married Elizabeth Mitnick Doris and traveled to India on a spiritual quest, by that time, he had already started performing chiropractic adjustments on friends. Inspired by growing up in the home of his chiropractic grandfather, who was a pioneer in his field, John went on to study at Palmer College of Chiropractic in Davenport, Iowa. While pursuing his study, he opened a health food store and had his first two children. He developed a lifelong commitment to natural food, a vegetarian diet, and natural health care. In 1976, John and Betsy moved to West Barnstable, where he opened Great Marsh Chiropractic and had a third child. 
For nearly 50 years, John practiced chiropractic and applied kinesiology from his beautiful building on 6A in West Barnstable, where he had a dedicated following of patients. In in addition to natural health care, John had many passions. He was an environmentalist and deeply cared about the health of the kettle ponds, natural springs, and riverways on Cape Cod. He was a longtime member of the Massachusetts Water Works Association. He was a bird watcher and loved swimming and boating in the ponds and ocean on Cape Cod. His passion for healing was equally matched on the dance floor. He was an excellent ballroom and tango dance partner, and up until his death could be found out dancing several times a week. John was a true original with stories and lessons about life that he shared with his community. He was proud of his three creative children, Oliver Doris of Tacoma, Washington, a glassblower, Rachel Doris of New York City, a textile designer, and Nicholas Doris of Jamaica Plain, a carpenter sculptor. In addition to his children, he survived by three grandchildren and two brothers, William and Robert Doris. John truly dedicated his life to helping others, and we can all be proud of his positive contribution to the quality of life for many thousands of people who benefited from his wisdom and his healing touch. The memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. on January 27th at West Parish Church, 2049 Meeting House Way in West Barnstable. Robert Bobby Bianco, a beloved resident of South Dennis, passed away peacefully on Wednesday, December 20th at the McCarthy Care Center in Sandwich. Born and raised in New Britain, Connecticut, Bobby found his home on the Cape, where he established deep roots and lasting connections within the community. For many years, Bobby dedicated himself to Mid-Cape Home Centers, where his outgoing personality and genuine desire to assist people made him a beloved figure. His natural ability to connect effortlessly with others left a positive impact on countless lives. Bobby's infectious spirit always brought smiles to those around him, a true testament to his generous heart. Bobby's enthusiasm for cars extended to NASCAR and motorsports. He could talk endlessly about the latest models or the Sunday race. On nice days, he could be seen driving his black Camaro or red Miata but his greatest source of joy was found in his family. He held a profound love for his children, grandchildren, and extended family, finding true happiness in their company. He is survived by his son, Evan Bianco, and fiance Colby Wakefield, excuse me, Colby Waterfield from Falmouth, daughter Nakia Monahan and son-in-law Carrie Monahan from Framingham, brother Richard Bianco and sister-in-law Mary Cece Bianco from Centerville, brother-in-law Joseph Muka from South Yarmouth, and his grandchildren, and a former wife, Deborah Kavanaugh from Hyannis. In honor of Bobby's vibrant life, a celebration of life will be held in February 2024. His memory will live on in the hearts of those he touched, leaving a legacy of warmth, laughter, and cherished moments. Norman Edward Norm Waite, 66, of Falmouth, left this earth and was reunited in heaven with his father Gilbert Gill Waite, mother Ruth Ginny Waite, sister Nancy Waite Mars, and a nephew Andrew Kahn on October 25th. Norm was passionate about photography and graduated from Hallmark Institute of Photography in Turner's Fall, Mass. in 1976. He was also fascinated with health foods and spent time working in the health food industry. 
He was a lover of animals and will be remembered fondly for his witty sense of humor and ability to always make others laugh. Norm leaves behind his brother, Dave Waite of Cambridge, and sister Martha Marnie Barnes of Black Mountain, North Carolina. Services will be held at a later date. And Dorothy Nesbitt Reed, a resident of North East Ham, passfully pieced away on Saturday, January 6th. She now joins her late beloved husband, Roger Stewart Reed, in eternal peace. Born on May 22, 1935, in Hartford, Dorothy was the cherished daughter of the late Raymond and Emma Nesbitt and her stepmother, Gertrude Nesbitt. Dorothy will be deeply missed by her two children, Stephen Reed and his wife Patricia of Methuen, and Deborah Zorney and her husband John of North, Dart of North Dartmouth, her brother Richard Nesbitt and his wife Debbie of Rocky Hill, Connecticut, two grandchildren, a great-grandson, and several nieces. In honoring Dorothy's wishes, there will be no calling hours. A private interment will be held to celebrate her life at a future date. Back to the news in this headline, Trump plans heavy play in some Democratic states. Former President Donald Trump is already expanding his big talk about the 2024 general election, claiming he will play for Democratic-leaning states that Republicans, including him, have not won in decades. One of the other things I'm going to do, and I may be foolish in doing it, is I'm going to make a heavy play for New York, heavy play for New Jersey, for Virginia, for New Mexico, and a heavy play for a state that hasn't been won in years, Minnesota, Trump told news reporters in an interview last weekend. Trump lost New York, New Jersey, Virginia, New Mexico, and Minnesota in both the 2016 and 2020 elections. He acknowledged he may not make as big a play in those states as he will in Pennsylvania, which he did win in 2016 but lost in 2020. But the former president has to win the Republican presidential nomination first, starting with the Iowa caucuses on January 15th and the New Hampshire primary on January 23rd. GOP rivals such as former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie have challenged Trump's ability to win a general election against President Biden or any other Democrat. Opponents said Trump's legal problems and the drama and chaos that surrounds him will turn off independent voters in battleground states, much less Democratic bastions like New York. Trump also faces up to four criminal trials, two of them involving his efforts to reverse his 2020 election loss to Biden. The trials could cut down on Trump's campaign schedule in any number of states. The battle for the Electoral College is likely to boil down to six battleground states that Biden carried in 2020, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Trump, who leads Biden in many early general election polls, exudes confidence about Democratic states. He told reporters he may rent out New York's Madison Square Garden for a rally. In this headline, Epstein List Fuels Conspiracy Theories. Less than an hour before a trove of papers related to sex trafficking financier Jeffrey Epstein was unsealed on Wednesday night, Former President Donald Trump's niece and longtime antagonist Mary Trump sent out a blast mail titled Revealed, My Uncle and Epstein's List to her nearly 140,000 newsletter followers. 
But much like the release of Epstein documents this week, Mary Trump's post revealed little. Instead, the best-selling author rehashed the former president's one-time friendship with Epstein and mentioned an unnamed woman who had made lurid abuse claims against Donald Trump before withdrawing her case. At the other end of the dial, popular right-wing commentator Glenn Beck told his 450,000 paid subscribers that we know Bill Clinton's mentioned 50 times in the Epstein documents, while failing to note that the prominent Democrat's name appeared repeatedly due to a legal argument over a witness's truthfulness and not because of any new claims of wrongdoing by Clinton. The release of the long-anticipated Epstein files by a Manhattan federal judge has sparked a feeding frenzy by hardcore partisans and conspiracy theorists, fueled in part by misinformation and internet fakes, another example of surging political paranoia and mistrust as the U.S. enters a high-stakes election year, experts say. There's a word for it, hopium, said Mike Rothschild, an author who researches conspiracy movements. It's this addictive hope that the next big thing is going to come and forget about all the failures. This is going to be the thing that finally brings down your enemy, whether your enemy is liberal or conservative. That strain of unshakable belief, he said, it's a very human thing. As the release of the documents neared, speculation of what and who they might expose reached a boil. Representative Tim Burchett, a a Tennessee Republican, said he expected to see congressional colleagues revealed as friends of Epstein. Late-night host Jimmy Kimmel threatened to sue New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers for suggesting on ESPN that Kimmel would be named in the papers. He wasn't. The so-called Epstein list and the scandal surrounding the multimillionaire's exploitation of teenage girls offers plenty of red meat for partisans on the right and the left. Trump and Epstein were filmed and photographed together at parties, and in 2002 he praised the wealthy businessman as a terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with, Trump told New York Magazine. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. Clinton, like Trump, appears on flight logs for Epstein's private jet. Clinton's spokesman said in 2019, after Epstein was arrested on federal sex trafficking charges, that the former president had flown on Epstein's jet to destinations in Europe, Africa, and Asia. Both Clinton and Trump said after the 2019 arrest they were unaware of Epstein's crimes and hadn't spoken to him for more than a decade. Trump told reporters in the White House the two had fallen out. I was not a fan, he said. And testimony in the papers released this week has discredited claims that Clinton was ever a guest at Epstein's private 70-acre Caribbean island, which he has always denied. But that hasn't stopped social media personalities with huge audiences from stitching either Clint or Trump, depending on the poster's sympathy, to Epstein's side. Trump, despite his own partying with Epstein, helped drive the island narrative, telling the Conservative Political Action Conference in 2015, Bill Clinton, nice guy. A lot of problems coming up in the famous island with Epstein. Donald Trump Jr. boosted those claims this week in a post that received 2.7 million views. Both former presidents have been accused of sexual misconduct. Clinton was impeached in 1998 over his affair with a White House intern. In May, a jury in a federal civil lawsuit found Trump liable for sexually abusing advice columnist E. Jean Carroll in 1996 
awarding her $5 million in damages. He has appealed. By Thursday afternoon, ahead of the release of another batch of Epstein documents, popular social media accounts were claiming that an Iowa school shooting earlier that same day had been staged to divert attention from potentially embarrassing disclosures in the Epstein papers. That conspiracy theory theory points to a broader and less partisan mistrust of American elites and the conviction that powerful people will do anything to cover their tracks. I think there is the perception that Epstein ran in these rarefied circles, elites of society, of arts, politics, culture, royalty, and that most of them somehow knew something about what was going on, didn't say anything, and didn't do anything, said Rothschild, the author of Jewish Space Lasers, the Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. A lot of what's happening is this guilt by association that anybody who had anything to do with Epstein is also linked to the worst things Epstein did. On Thursday, Julie K. Brown, the Miami Herald reporter who was pivotal, pivotal, who was pivotal in bringing Epstein down, took on her colleagues in the press for downplaying the new documents. The way the mainstream media is dismissing the Jeffrey Epstein files reminds me how it pretty much ignored the fact that Epstein molested dozens of girls in 2008 because, well, there was no proof, Brown wrote on X. Brown was referring to a 2008 sweetheart deal that allowed Epstein to serve 13 months in a Florida jail on a single count of soliciting a minor for prostitution ending a federal investigation in which he faced a potential life sentence. The prosecutor who signed off on that deal, Alex Acosta, later served in Trump's cabinet as U.S. Labor Secretary. Still, someone was likely abusing children alongside Epstein and his former girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell. Epstein is dead, and Maxwell is serving a 20-year prison sentence. Every other prominent person who has been alleged in civil court proceedings to have joined in Epstein's crimes, a list that notably doesn't include either Clinton or Trump, has denied it, and no one else has been prosecuted. In this headline, Barriers to Wick Food Frustrate Moms. Bianca Williams was tired of trying to find a store that either accepted federal food benefits for low-income mothers and their children or a store that had quality produce. So the Milwaukee resident, who has seven kids, including two currently being breastfed, decided in November that she'd rather turn to frozen Thanksgiving leftovers and food from family and friends. More than six million people in the U.S. get benefits from the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women and Children, commonly known as WIC. But it's not always easy to get the fresh produce, baby formula, and other nutritious WIC-approved items. Williams' closest Walmart shuttered in 2016. Since then, she said, WIC can be too much of a hassle. Sometimes, to be honest, I don't even use it, said Williams, who makes about $7 too much a month to qualify for food stamps because it's so hard to get to and from the grocery store and find a vendor that does accept WIC. Unlike food stamps, WIC-approved items can't be bought online, though a few states are working on pilot programs to make it a reality. Complex requirements make it tough for smaller stores and sometimes big-name grocers to participate in WIC. 
Some states are trying to expand access after vendors left over the last five years due to changes in the program or closing down during the pandemic. It's really set up to be a program, at least in our area, that a large full-scale grocer can participate in, said Ann Sanders, the Director of Public Benefits Policy and Programs at the Pennsylvania Profit nonprofit Just Harvest. Since 2019, the state has seen a loss of 353 vendors. Though both are under the U.S. Department of Agriculture, WIC differs from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP, commonly known as food stamps, because SNAP participants can buy almost any grocery item they want, regardless of the nutritional value. With WIC, state use, states use federal guidelines to choose products and quantities that vendors are required to carry. Brands commonly found on WIC-approved lists include Cheerios, Juicy Juice, and Similac. The USDA is reviewing comments on a proposed rule that would remove barriers to online shopping, like not requiring a cashier to be present for WIC transactions. And here's what's happening tonight on television. And NBC at 8 p.m., America's Got, America's Got Talent, Fantasy League. The qualifying rounds enter their second week. One act is given a golden buzzer and earns a spot in the finals, with the audience vote sending five acts through to the semifinals. 90 Day Diaries on TLC at 9 p.m. It's the season pre premiere. Kim feels like she's getting out of her post-breakup rut. Ari and Benny have an unexpected roommate in their new Las Vegas home, and Emily and Kobe update us on their life. Uh, let's see, what else? Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project. It's a documentary that's on HBO at 9 p.m., and it's a documentary that takes a look at the life of poet Nikki Giovanni and the revolutionary periods in which she wrote, from the Civil Rights Movement to Black Lives Matter. And here is today's Ask Carolyn column. Someone writes, Dear Carolyn, my husband gets up every morning and immediately takes a shower. There are no exceptions. He does not present himself to others, even our children, before showering. This is the way he is. I have worked and always will work happily around what, in my mind, is just one of his quirks. About 10 years ago, I learned he revealed to a family member his concerns about my not showering often enough and someday acquiring old lady smell. I expressed to him how much he had hurt me and how terrible he made me feel about myself. He apologized, but I am reminded of the hurt every time he talks about my showering, which he does nearly every day. He thinks it's an innocent question if he asks me when I'm going to shower, but for me, this means I must smell bad. Sometimes he'll mention how quick my shower was. I've asked him a thousand times to please stop talk about my showering, but he won't even try. He says he's not doing anything wrong. I am at my wit's end. I feel constantly assaulted. He just says he doesn't mean anything by it, that it's unreasonable of me to expect him to not use the word shower, that it's my problem and I have to get over it. What should I do? Am I the one who needs therapy? Signed, Anonymous. Dear Anonymous, yes, but you're not the one who needs it, and it's not because you're in the wrong. First, he's gaslighting you. That he doesn't mean anything by it is plainly false. Second, the fastest way to zero conversation about showering is for you to tell him you're through engaging on this topic and then never, ever, not once, respond to him about it again. However, that won't address the underlying problem, 
That's what the therapy's for. It is possible he is hypersensitive to smell. Imagine constantly smelling or tasting things others can't detect. Imagine if it's gross. He could be repulsed by your natural unshowered smell or different neurotac. He could have a compulsion. A health condition is just one part, though. The other is his unkindness. The former, his problem. The latter, his dumping his problem on you. He could easily have said, I've been whatever, super sensitive, compulsive, etc. my whole life. I realize it's my burden to carry, but specific minor accommodations would help me, like switch to a new shampoo kind of minor. Instead, he's saying things so disingenuous, suggesting you expect him to not use the word shower, that I recommend the therapy be solo to start, not with him. That's all specific to your concern that you're at fault or smell bad. All such parsing aside, this isn't really about smell or showers or whatever, except in the details. Those details can distract from the defining issue of your marriage. One spouse feels constantly assaulted, and one feels adamantly entitled to keep doing, knowingly, the one thing that feels like assault. The only questions left with a scenario like that are always, how is that okay? Why are you still there? And what do you think will change? Individual therapy can help you explore these too. I'm sorry. And finally today, Timothy Chalamet and Wonka topped the box office charts for the third time in its four weekends in theaters. Warner Brothers' family-oriented musical added $14.4 million in ticket sales, according to Studio Estimate Sunday, bringing its total domestic grosses to $164.7 million. Wonka is a perfect crowd-pleaser released at the perfect time, and it's going to ride that wave into January. It's an opportune time for it to be in the marketplace. So that's all the time I have for today. This is your reader, Beth, saying thank you for listening. And as always, thank you for your continued support of the Audible Local Ledger.